Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, Episode 24, The Legislative Assembly. With the regime of the National Assembly officially coming to an end, over the next three episodes, we'll be examining the new revolutionary era ushered in by the doomed Constitution of 1791. While the Legislative Assembly might not exist for any great length of time, it nonetheless oversaw a period of tremendous change to both the fundamental character and direction of the French Revolution. So, the plan for the next three episodes looks something like this. In this episode, we're going to focus on everything relating to the new Assembly and the various internal problems troubling France. What this means is that we'll be exploring the new body's composition, its factions, and its leading personalities, before we then dive into the various domestic issues which forced the Assembly to take some pretty drastic measures. My plan is that by covering the majority of the Assembly's internal problems this episode, we can focus on all the external problems next episode. An episode which will be titled The Road to War. With a title like that for episode 25, I think it's understandable that there will be no prizes awarded for guessing the theme of episode 26. Now, before we get into this jam-packed episode, I do have a couple of announcements slash thank yous I do need to make. Grey history is obviously something relatively new, and so every time someone sends me a message or leaves a written review, it unsurprisingly results in one big smile on my face. The same can be said for when we cross a new milestone for the show. The other week, the podcast hit 25,000 downloads, and needless to say, I was ecstatic. Considering when I launched the show, I was worried that the only listeners might be my little brother and my best mate, the podcast's reception and all your messages of appreciation and encouragement have been truly fantastic. Please keep them coming. As someone who holds dreams of being able to write history podcasts for a living, a big thank you to everyone out there who has been supporting the show by spreading the word about grey history. Also, another big thank you to the show's first five Patreon supporters, Michael, Humbert, Joshua, Jake and Adam. Hopefully, you're all enjoying the bonus content which accompanies the regular show, and thank you so much for your extra support. Understandably, I'm not quite at the point where I can quit my day job and release weekly episodes, but I am slowly approaching the point where I can start to purchase new resources on a per-episode basis to dive even deeper into the grey. A reminder that if you're enjoying grey history and you would like more grey history, especially more frequent grey history, supporting the show by telling people about the podcast or donating a dollar or more via Patreon is a great way to share the love. iTunes reviews also help the cause. Anyway, considering that this is the longest episode yet, let us begin. 
Welcome to Grey History. Episode 24, The Legislative Assembly. On the 30th of September, 1791, the National Constituent Assembly came to an end. Having sworn never to disband until the constitution of the kingdom was established, the nation's representatives had finally completed their mission, and their mandate was no more. Replacing the National Assembly was the creatively and appropriately named Legislative Assembly which assembled in Paris the next day on October the 1st. As the deputies gathered in the halls of the Salle du Manège, many hoped to consolidate the revolution and continue to enact reforms which would benefit the nation of France. Far from achieving peace and stability, the Legislative Assembly would oversee a second French Revolution less than a year after its formation. Over the next three episodes, we'll be exploring What went so horribly wrong? In order to discuss the fate of the doomed Legislative Assembly, we must first discuss the body itself. Specifically, we must discuss the new legislature's composition, its factions, and its leading men. Starting with the body's composition, the new legislature had some considerable differences from its predecessor, most notably its faces. Not a single deputy of the Legislative Assembly had been a deputy of the National Assembly. The National Assembly had passed a self-denying ordinance back in May 1791, which prevented any deputy from participating in the body's successor. What this means for us is that more or less everyone who's been dominating our storyline so far was barred from continuing their occupation as a national lawmaker. Lafayette, Barnev, the Lamette brothers... Dupont, Talleyrand, Bailly, Abbé Sies, Abbé Marie, Abbé Grégoire, Robespierre, Pétion, all of these individuals were now in the legislative sinbin. To be clear, not every deputy supported this selfless, self-denying ordinance. The Fillon Club in particular had unsuccessfully tried to repeal this measure in the aftermath of the Chab de Mars massacre, and their failure to do so had significant consequences. With this exclusion in place, and with former deputies barred from entering the king's ministry as well, there was a considerable practical repercussion to this ordinance. Not a single individual who helped to craft the constitution would be involved in implementing the constitution. Not a single father of the nation would be responsible for rearing his child. Everyone who had been involved in creating the new revolutionary order, was now denied a seat at the table to help consolidate that revolutionary order. Historian Annie Besant laments that France denied herself the services of many noble and glorious men, while historian Shayla Matthews criticises the decision as foolish. The Legislative Assembly was a very different body from that which had drawn up the Constitution. Upon motion of Robespierre, the Constituent Assembly, by an act of foolish, though well-intended self-denial, had decreed that none of its members should be elected to the succeeding House. Accordingly, 
that legislators who assembled in 1791 to carry on the affairs of the nation were almost as untried in statesmanship and in legislative proceedings as had been the members of the old States General. If you think back to our list of reasons, often articulated by historians as to why the new order failed, as to why the Constitution of 1791 was fundamentally flawed, well, this self-denying ordinance is another consideration you can add to that collection. However, while some historians criticise the Legislative Assembly for its inexperience and point to this shortcoming as a cause for the body's premature demise, this criticism is perhaps too simplistic. It's not so much that I disagree with historian Eric Hazen that inexperience was a hallmark of the Legislative Assembly, as much as I think that the statement needs to be much more specific. Because when you take the time to analyse the composition of the body, experience of a specific kind was something the new deputies most certainly had. While the Legislative Assembly, by its very design and through no fault of its own, couldn't contain deputies with national experience, the body was dominated by men who had experience in local government. Almost 80% of deputies had worked in the new departments, districts or municipalities, so any criticism of inexperience must be restricted to the national variety. Interestingly, this local experience is linked to another noticeable difference between the two assemblies. In the National Assembly, almost a fifth of deputies came from Paris. In its successor, it was only a twentieth. The compositional differences between the two assemblies weren't just geographic, however. From a social perspective, the Legislative Assembly contained far less members originating from the first and second estates. Where deputies from the third estate made up roughly half of the Estates General and thus half of the National Assembly, The Commons comprised some 90% of the Legislative Assembly. Of the 10% of deputies who came from the former privileged orders, all members of the clergy had sworn the controversial oath to the Constitution, while most former nobles originated from recently elevated families and had no connection to the order's more prestigious and ancient aristocratic lineages. These results reflect the fact that the electorate was dominated by the active citizens of the Third Estate, as well as the fact that more conservative priests and nobles had no interest in partaking in elections governed by a heretical constitution. All things considered, the Legislative Assembly could be viewed as a relatively homogenous body. Roughly 90% of deputies came from the Third Estate, and almost 80% of deputies had prior experience in government in some way, shape or form. Furthermore, the majority of the body was composed of committed constitutionalists, people who genuinely supported constitutional monarchy. Most deputies wanted to consolidate the revolution and expand its reforms into areas such as a national education system or programs to help the poor. Given all of these factors, you might be willing to draw the two following conclusions. Firstly, that the body would be far less fractured than the National Assembly, especially given the absence of a prominent conservative faction. And secondly, that the body would be dominated by members of the Fillon Club, given the club's prominence during the tricolor terror 
and the fact that the triumvirate of Barnev, Dupont and Lamette had been leading the revolution in the final months of the National Assembly. Well, both of these assumptions would be reasonable, and both of these assumptions would be wrong. Starting with the first assumption, the Legislative Assembly was incredibly factionalised. There's a few reasons that drove this, and we'll get into the details later on, but one key factor was the belief in conspiracies. The flight to Varennes had revealed international conspiracy in the highest levels of the court, and thus many deputies, despite being constitutionalists, were deeply suspicious of the king and his entourage. Furthermore, many deputies were suspicious of each other. Fillon deputies remembered that they split from the Jacobins because the latter flirted with republicanism throughout July 1791, while Jacobin deputies were suspicious of the Fillons for selling out their ideas for their own personal gain. Which, I must say, is a fairly reasonable suspicion, considering Barnev, Duport and the Lamettes seemed to have done exactly that as they transitioned from patriots to pragmatists seemingly overnight. Conspiracy theories thus fostered a culture of suspicion, and combined with deep divisions between the Jacobins and the Fillons, fueled by the bitter and recent memory of the tricolour terror, this not only facilitated factions, but also fostered a highly polarising and divisive political environment. Regarding the second reasonable but ultimately incorrect assumption, the Legislative Assembly was far from dominated by members associated with the Fillon Club. Having played such a leading role in the reactionary movement after the Champ de Mars massacre, the Fillons now found themselves in the unfortunate position where they did not command an unassailable majority in the legislature. Historians debate the composition of the Assembly, but many believe that 264 deputies initially associated with the Fillons, while 136 initially associated with the Jacobins. That number would later rise closer to 200 within the Assembly's first few months, meaning that both factions were soon of comparable strength. Sitting between them were some 300 or so independent deputies. What this meant was that both the left and the right of the Assembly had to constantly vie for control over this centre block of unaligned lawmakers. Needless to say, it was a situation that hardly fostered stability. Intriguingly, the setbacks for the Fillons didn't stop at the Chamber of National Power. In the municipal elections of November 1791, the Jacobins absolutely blitzed it. Like, Wehrmacht 1940-style blitzed it. Historian Melvin Edelstein remarks on the results. The elections of November 1791 completed the Jacobin conquest of city government in the ten biggest cities. Six of ten mayors, seven of eight procurers, and all seven of the substitute for whom information is available were societaires. The Jacobins formed an overwhelming majority of the new municipal personnel in at least five of the biggest cities. Strasbourg, 90%, Ruhr, 71%, Toulouse, 69%, Versailles, 64%, and Bordeaux, 58%.
The rise of the Jacobins at the expense of the Fillons was replicated partially in Paris. While the Jacobins failed to dominate the municipality, their popular candidate for mayor was successful. The former deputy Jérôme Pétion thumped the Marquis de Lafayette with two-thirds of the vote. By losing the mayoral election, the Fillon Club saw Paris fall under the command of not only a Jacobin, but a committed Republican. Just months after the Fillons looked as if they reigned supreme over the revolution, the club had experienced a major setback. Now, before we shift our focus to the new Jacobin deputies that come to dominate the revolution throughout 1792 and 1793, we should cover the status of two things. Firstly, the status of the Fillon deputies who had dominated mid-1791. And secondly, just what the ideological differences were between the Fillons and the Jacobins, especially considering the former had split from the latter just months before. While the triumvirate of Barnev, Duport and Lamette were forbidden from becoming deputies in the new Legislative Assembly, that didn't mean they had retired. Barnev in particular sought to work with the court and the Fillon deputies of the Legislative Assembly to maintain his political position and to achieve his political aims. The one thing Barnev did have in his favour was the fact that many of the king's ministers were associated with the Fillons, meaning that, hypothetically, the Fillon club did still wield reasonable power in the national government. However, as we shall see, the court didn't particularly trust or listen to Barnev, and its aims were contrary to those of not only the ambitious revolutionary, but of the revolution more broadly. Regarding just what divided the Jacobins and the Fillons, the extent of the division between the two clubs really depends on the angle you're coming from. If one is viewing the whole political spectrum, then both clubs were quite similar in comparison to, say, the ultra-royalists of the reactionary far right, which wanted to burn the constitution altogether and restore absolute monarchy. Even when compared to the strict constitutionalist right, that is to say the conservatives who participated in the National Assembly, led by the likes of Abbe Marie and Malware, both clubs still shared a lot of similarities. Incidentally, at least 150 conservative deputies in the National Assembly had rejected the king's acceptance of the constitution, believing him to be a prisoner king with no capacity to deny the constitution presented to him. The Fionns, however, were committed to the constitution, and while the Jacobins were a little less committed, many had accepted that they would have to slowly push for the reforms they sought rather than simply rewrite the constitution. Yet, while the Jacobins and the Fillons did share some similarities and opponents, there were nevertheless considerable differences between the two quarrelling siblings. The Fillon club tended to emphasise the individual's rights and liberties which were enshrined in the Declaration of the Rights of Man. The needs of the citizen took precedence over the needs of the state. Unlike the Jacobins, who desired to modify the constitution, the Fillons staunchly supported the document. As the club's motto simply stated, The constitution, the whole constitution, nothing but the constitution. 
The Jacobins, to the left of the Fionns, didn't share this position. Instead of emphasising the needs of the individual, the Jacobins tended to emphasise the needs of the community. Instead of demanding that the rights of the individual take precedence over the needs of the state, the Jacobins were more than willing to infringe on individual rights if the situation demanded such a response. Or, as historian Francois Mignot puts it, The Jacobins were disposed to defend the revolution in every way, and in this differed from the Fionns, who would only defend it with the law. Finally, while the Fionns positioned themselves as the champions of the constitution, the Jacobins were openly hostile to specific elements of it, such as the distinction between active and passive citizens. This meant that while the majority of the Jacobins officially accepted the document governing the new revolutionary order, many were also inclined to revise the document should the opportunity arise. Furthermore, a minority of Jacobins were inclined to create such an opportunity. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Having discussed the Assembly's composition and factions, we can now shift our attention to the body's leading men. I've decided I'm not going to spend any time introducing the Fionn deputies of the Legislative Assembly because, well, they don't really deserve our attention. None of the deputies on the right side of the chamber were particularly charismatic, important, or noteworthy. As historian Christopher Hibbert succinctly puts it, the most gifted and rhetorically most powerful deputies were those who sat on the left. Given this, and considering they'll be centre stage of our story for quite some time, it is worth taking a moment to discuss just who were these powerful deputies of the left, these men who were so influential to the fate of not only the Legislative Assembly, but also the French monarchy, the French Revolution, and indeed, the history of the world. Reintroducing Jacques Brousseau. If there's a single deputy who we associate with the Legislative Assembly, it has to be Brousseau. And thus, despite introducing him back in episode 17, I do think it's appropriate to do a quick recap. Aged 37, Brousseau was slightly built, naive, very well-read, and passionate about bettering humanity. Originally a law clerk, Brousseau pursued a literary career instead, and published several publications and pamphlets where he passionately argued for a range of reforms, 
most notably the abolition of slavery. By the time of the Legislative Assembly, Brousseau commanded one of the most popular newspapers in Paris, a publication named Patriot Francais. A leading member of the political society, the Cercle Social, Brousseau's fingerprints were all over the petition at the centre of the Champ de Mars massacre, and the vocal Republican journalist was well-connected with the revolution's elites. Incidentally, the Cercle Social was never resurrected after the Tricolour Terror, with its members instead carving out their own faction within the Jacobin Club, which, having conveniently purged itself of liberal monarchists, was now ripe for new leadership. One factor that set Brousseau apart from many deputies was the fact that the journalist was perceived as a quite worldly individual. Brousseau had not only lived in England, but had also visited both the United States and Switzerland. Having spent so much time abroad, Brousseau was seen as someone with considerable expertise on matters relating to foreign affairs. This helped Brousseau to soon become the de facto head of the Assembly's diplomatic committee, which is important because Brousseau was one of these people who more or less loved the idea of world peace. Specifically, the type of world peace which is brought about by revolutionary wars of liberation. You know the kind, the type of war where you accuse a dictator of oppressing his people, and with the benefit of the moral high ground, you proceed to invade in the name of liberty, justice, and for the benefit of the oppressed, while of course conveniently stating that not doing so would endanger your own nation's freedoms. <coughs> Iraq. <coughs> anyway, I digress. The point is, is that Brousseau came to dominate foreign policy, which is pretty damn important considering Brousseau's warmongering skills makes John Bolton look like an amateur. However, as capable as Brousseau was, he was no Mirabeau, and was far from talented enough to dominate the Assembly's agenda all by himself. While favourable descriptions might depict Brousseau as energetic, engaging and light-hearted, unfavourable descriptions would characterise him as muddled, indecisive and too idealistic. His colleague Bourneau went as far as saying that Brousseau possessed want of foresight and intelligence in equal proportions and thus doomed to lead any party to ruin. His enemies would add a lack of moral character to the list thanks to previous work as a police spy. Luckily, Brousseau had his own coalition of the willing to assist him in his endeavours. Supporting Brousseau was a group of capable deputies, primarily from the Department of Gironde. In fact, capable might be underselling it. Historian Simon Sharma describes Brousseau's entourage as a battery of orators the like of which had never before been heard together in one room, and certainly not in France. This battery of orators would eventually become known as the Girondins, but at this time they were often referred to as the Brissoans. This loose group of friends and associates included Pierre Venu, Maximum Isnard, and Marguerite Elie Gaudet. Apologies to the French speakers out there. Venu was particularly impressive. 
The 38-year-old was an amazing orator and at times could embody the voice of the nation. He was one of the few revolutionaries to rival Mirabeau in the skill of speechcraft. Isna and Gardet were also skilled and influential in their own right. So, Brousseau, Vernu, Isna and Gardet, these will be some of the names, amongst others, that come to dominate the agenda of the Legislative Assembly and, as a result, the agenda of Europe. Before we move on, however, I should note that these men weren't just a group of impressive and capable public servants. While historians across the political spectrum remark on the group's command of the assembly, they don't necessarily agree on their competency nor their morality. I'll save the latter point for another time and instead focus on the former. Regarding the group's competency, there are certainly a few historians who are keen to help the Brissoans lose some of their shine. Historian Louis Madeleine, for example, is particularly critical of the Brissoans describing them as never fit for anything but talking and writing. According to Madeleine, the Brissoans loved grandiloquent words, fine gestures and stage effects, and applause was what they hungered for. Historian Jules Michelet notes the opinion of a less critical contemporary. Michelet records the Brissoans were men full of energy and talent, admirably young and extraordinarily energetic, with an unbound devotion to ideas. Yet despite this, the man soon realised that they were very ignorant, strangely inexperienced and fickle. They were talkers and controversialists, dominated by the habits of the bar, which reduced their invention and initiative. While their capacity for invention and initiative might have been hampered by their fondness for dramatic speeches, the Brissoans were still very much capable of action, especially compared to their Fillon opponents. As we shall see, action is exactly what the war party demanded to address the perils that threatened the French nation. So, having discussed the new legislative assembly, its composition, its factions, and its leading men, we can now talk about just what perils threatened the Kingdom of France as the body gathered in the spring of 1791. The Legislative Assembly hardly inherited a peaceful and tranquil nation when it began to meet on the 1st of October. In the first few weeks and months of the body's existence, the Legislative Assembly was confronted with a series of problems which jeopardised its objective of consolidating the new revolutionary order. In fact, the word jeopardised risks understating the severity of the situation. Historian Hippolyte Taine describes the state of affairs as the Assembly met in October 1791. In the eight departments that surround Paris, there are riots on every market day. Farms are invaded and the cultivators of the soil are ransomed by bands of vagabonds. The mayor of Moulins is riddled with balls and dragged out from the hands of the populace, streaming with blood. At Belfort, a riot for the purpose 
of retaining a convoy of grain and the commissioner of the Upper Rhine in danger of death. At Buxvilla, owners of property attacked by poor National Guards and by the soldiers of Samsam, houses broken into and cellars pillaged. At Maycor, a mob of women beating drums and for three days holding the Hotel de Ville in a state of siege. Five months later, the situation was still dire. In February 1792, one deputy recorded, All the departments swarm with malcontents. All the cities are overwhelmed with sedition. Everywhere, the authorities are ignored. The laws are violated. In short, as the Legislative Assembly came into existence, France once more was on the precipice of chaos. What were the causes of that chaos, I hear you ask? Well, a whole host of problems mixed together to create a toxic and destabilising brew in the final months of 1791 and the early months of 1792. Inflation, food shortages and revolts were just some of the factors that threatened to derail not only the Legislative Assembly, but the revolution itself. The first of many problems the Assembly had to grapple with throughout the fall and winter of 1791 was inflation. When the National Assembly had nationalised church land, the body had created the monetary instrument known as the Assignat. The Assignat was paper money issued by the government and it was backed by the property France had seized from the Catholic Church. Believe it or not, the revolutionaries soon decided to make the money printer go brrrr. And, as with all good money printing experiments, the decision to embrace careless printing soon produced some pretty nasty consequences. I'm hoping someone from the Federal Reserve is listening. Anyway, I digress. Throughout the first few months of the Legislative Assembly, the value of the Assignat proceeded to drop dramatically. In November, the Assignats had dropped to roughly 80% of their face value. Fast forward a few months, and by February 1792, the notes were worth roughly 50% of their face value in some regions. One key reason for the currency's decline was the increasingly common belief that France would find herself at war with Europe. Brousseau's pro-war rhetoric was impacting the Assignat, as people felt the currency would be worthless in a time of national emergency. Furthermore, should the counter-revolutionaries win, the paper money would be backed by nationalised property, which was suddenly no longer nationalised. People rushed to pay off debts or purchase property as they sought to offload cash they viewed as soon to be worthless. Of course, rampant inflation and happy and stable society rarely go hand in hand. And thus, this inflation only served to make another problem even greater. While 1790 had seen a reasonable harvest, 1791 saw the return of food shortages. In some parts of the country, torrential rain had caused flooding, impacting the production and distribution of flour despite a relatively decent crop. In other parts of the country, the opposite occurred, with severe drought crippling the harvest, particularly in southwest and central France. 
what this meant was the return of two hallmarks of the revolution of 1789. The first was bread riots. With wheat and other basic commodities running scarce, the common people took matters into their own hands. In some parts of the country, groups of armed peasants would congregate along rivers and seize passing barges loaded with grain. In others, marketplaces became the domain of the mob. Price controls were forced upon merchants with the threat of death should they not comply. Across the country, subsistence riots broke out as people demanded bread and basic commodities. Added together, these actions fueled the return of the second revolutionary hallmark, a popular belief in a famine plot. Yes, that old chestnut, the popular conspiracy theory where counter-revolutionaries hoarded grain for their own gain and were deliberately starving the common people. As one contemporary complained, A large number of rich men allow their property to run down and their fields to lie fallow, so as to enjoy seeing the suffering of the people. Now, do remember that if you think the idea that a bunch of nobles and renegade priests deliberately starving the people for their own benefit sounds ridiculous to you, please do keep in mind that as I write this, 5G towers are currently being burnt to a crisp in an attempt to stop Bill Gates and his elitist pals from taking over the world with mind control capabilities. For all our progress as a species, we've only come so far. The hardship experienced as a result of both inflation and food shortages eventually resulted in the peasants taking out their frustrations in a very sensible and peaceful manner via the polling booth. Oh wait, that's right, most members of the Third Estate weren't allowed to vote, so perhaps that explains the not-so-peaceful manner they chose instead. As hardship gripped the nation, fueled by inflation and food shortages, anti-noble violence rose dramatically across the country. In fact, according to historian Timothy Tackett, the nobility were the most common target of collective violence in the first half of 1792. Interestingly, much of the anger of the commons was focused on signorial rights, just like it had been during the Great Fear in the aftermath of the fall of the Bastille. To recap, signorial rights or feudal dues were obligations that peasants often owed to their landlord or local noble. These could take the form of fees for weddings or property transfers. They could take the form of taxes on production. Or they could even take the form of monopolies on everything from river crossings to flour mills, from bread ovens to local forests. Of course, the National Assembly had officially abolished privileges back in August 1789 in an attempt to end the peasant uprisings of the Great Fear. But the subsequent reclassification of so many privileges as property had prevented numerous burdens from actually being lifted. While an individual could permanently liquidate their obligations through purchasing them, the costs of doing so made this an unviable option for the vast majority of the peasantry. Furthermore, the Fionn leadership of the National Assembly had recently encouraged landlords to push their claims for the various debts and obligations owed to them. Combined with inflation and high prices for basic commodities, the hardship experienced by the common people was significant. 
One letter written to the Assembly reads, We thought that, after the decrees suppressing the feudal regime had been passed, we should be as free in our property as in our persons. Two years' experience has shown us that we are still slaves. We have no seigneur anymore. He is at Koblenz. But he has left us his tax collectors, who badger and persecute us, just as they did before the revolution. Unless you come to our help, we are ruined. Having been promised liberation, only to discover that emancipation came with a hefty price tag, the peasants were understandably frustrated. By the time you add inflation and food scarcity into the mix, that understandable frustration began to lead to unsurprising unrest. Worryingly for the assembly, as peasants burnt chateaus, attacked aristocrats, and demanded the abolition of the seigneurial system in its entirety, these rioters were sometimes aided by members of the National Guard. Far from keeping the peace, in some regions, the Guard was in fact undermining it. In response, the Assembly set up a committee to examine the claims of landowners, but this ultimately led to few changes in government policy. It was not until France experienced a second revolution that meaningful reforms were implemented by the national government. Intriguingly though, this hatred towards feudal rights mixed with the growing resentment towards the nobility as a social class. Ever since the initial pamphlet wars of 1788, the nobility had been increasingly vilified by the more radical sections of the revolutionary press. By the end of 1791, this vilification had gone to new extremes. It had got to the point where nobles were depicted as a separate race, one incapable and unworthy of living amongst the free citizens of France. Of course, having been labelled everything from vampires to parasites to vultures, it was easy to reason why former nobles should not enjoy the privileges enshrined in the Declaration of the Rights of Man. Foreshadowing the terror, one contemporary implied that only the common people, the true citizens of France, should enjoy the privilege of liberty. The defence of liberty is basely abandoned every day by the rich and by the former nobility, who put on the mask of patriotism only to cheat us. It is not in this class, but only in that of citizens who are disdainfully called the people, that we find pure beings, those ardent souls really worthy of liberty. This demonization of the nobility, this us-versus-them mentality, helped to fuel the violence against the former aristocracy as the peasants rebelled against the abolished, yet somehow still existent, seigneurial system. Now, perhaps these spontaneous bouts of anti-aristocratic violence wouldn't have bothered the assembly so much if it wasn't for the fact that it was creating a bigger problem that the assembly most certainly did care about. All of this violence led to an increase in emigration. 
which unfortunately became a self-reinforcing cycle. Nobles became emigres, emigres were labelled as traitors and as counter-revolutionaries, remaining nobles were soon thought of as such and harassed as a result, thus leading to more nobles departing the nation. As a steady stream of aristocrats crossed the frontiers, the popular psyche became increasingly obsessed with the dangers that lurked outside, and convinced that the emigre threat had to be dealt with. Making this danger even more menacing was the recent development of a military element to the noble emigration. While the emigration had initiated with the departure of some disgruntled court aristocrats in July 1789, the pace of emigration in both the army and the navy had escalated dramatically after the flight to Varennes in June 1791. With the king's true feelings now known, many senior officers no longer felt bound to serve a revolution which had imprisoned its king. By the start of 1792, some 6,000 officers had emigrated from France, representing nearly two-thirds of the army's officer corps. Worryingly for the nation's deputies, this loss of officers not only meant a deterioration in the defence capabilities of the revolution, but seemingly an improvement in the offensive capabilities of the counter-revolution. Leading those capabilities were the king's brothers, Provence and Artois, who were camped near the French border in modern-day Germany. From the safety of the Holy Roman Empire, and under the implicit protection of the emperor, Marie Antoinette's brother, Leopold II, the princes made it clear that they were set on raising an army, and had every intention of invading France to liberate it from the tyrannical yoke of revolutionary Paris. Understandably, this agitation, this hostility, this aggression, deeply troubled many deputies. The country's warrior class made it clear that they intended to wage war, and it seemed that they had the full support of powerful European monarchies. Combined with the fact that the émigrés were led by the king's brothers and supported by the queen's brother, many deputies were genuinely quite distressed by the threat that lingered on the frontier. Furthermore, a threat that was not merely lingering, but in fact, growing. Heightening the alarm amongst the deputies of the assembly, the émigrés weren't the only enemies that occupied the nightmares of the revolutionaries. If the émigrés were the enemies at the gates, non-constitutional priests were the enemies already within. Ever since the civil constitution of the clergy, in July 1790, the revolutionary regime had been a heretical one. The introduction of elections, the curtailment of the Pope's authority, and the closure of parishes and monasteries either conflicted with the very foundations of the Catholic Church or enraged the Catholic faithful. Across the nation, almost half of the kingdom's priests refused to swear an oath of allegiance to the constitution, but the distribution of this refusal was far from even. In some regions, the proportion of non-constitutional priests was relatively small. In Provence, for example, 80% of priests had sworn the oath. In these regions, the National Assembly often successfully replaced renegade priests with constitutional ones. 
However, in other parts of the country, this policy of fire and hire was impractical. In the Department of Nor, 85% of priests refused to swear the oath, while Britannia and Alsace-Lorraine also contained notable rates of refractory priests. Given these levels of defiance, in some regions, the National Assembly couldn't just simply replace those individuals who refused to accept the government's tyrannical and blasphemous encroachment into religious affairs. Furthermore, the government had to tread carefully. The reforms were the source of much unrest in certain regions of the country, particularly southern and southeastern France, while the National Assembly had to ensure it wasn't about to set a match to a tinderbox by forcibly retiring popular priests. As a result of these practical realities, many non-constitutional priests, also known as refractory priests and non-juring priests, were allowed to stay in their posts. Interestingly, those priests who had been replaced often just set up shop down the road. Laws protecting religious freedoms meant that former priests could conduct mass in a nearby chapel and there was nothing the local authorities could do about it. Between those priests that could not be removed from their parishes and those priests that had remained in their communities despite their forced retirement, the number of practicing non-constitutional priests was significant. This policy of toleration, however, did not sit well with many new deputies and Parisian revolutionaries. In an environment characterised by a belief in conspiracies, the non-constitutional priests were the object of constant suspicion. Committed revolutionaries feared how these renegade Catholics could be corrupting the minds of the faithful. For example, the privacy of confession could be used to foster counter-revolutionary plots. Sermons might be focused on the need to sacrifice one's life for the glory of Christ. Kids' Sunday school could be used to emphasise the preeminence of the commandments, not the constitution, presumably using talking vegetables to do so. Put simply, the revolutionaries feared that churches and chapels across the nation were the breeding ground for sinister plots and evil schemes. These fears seemed to be coming true as pro-Catholic, anti-revolutionary unrest began to manifest across the nation. Caldevos, Gévaudan and La Vendée all experienced notable unrest, as did the recently annexed papal enclave of Avignon. In Avignon, more than 60 people were killed in a single night due to conflict between local supporters of either the revolution or the papacy. In the minds of the revolutionaries in Paris, there was no doubt as to the source of this bloody unrest. Non-constitutional priests. The Brissouin Maxima Isnar put it simply when he stated, Every corner of France is being soiled by the crimes of this caste. The less sensationalist Marquis de Ferrière agreed. Priests, and especially bishops, employed all the resources of fanaticism to excite the people, in town and country, against the civil constitution of the clergy. Convinced that the Catholic faithful 
were clearly being taught to defy the revolution, many in the Legislative Assembly were ready to embrace tougher measures to curtail the activity of criminal priests. Furthermore, with the number of nobles crossing the border to join the counter-revolutionary emigres seemingly increasing, the deputies also became convinced that dramatic action was needed on that front as well. In the minds of the nation's representatives, particularly Brissot and his allies, the various problems and revolts facing the nation was proof that France was under attack by a coordinated effort to topple the revolutionary order. The bread shortages, the violent unrest, the deterioration of the military, the actions of foreign powers, all of these things smelt like conspiracy. Even problems such as the fall of the value of the Assignat was attributed to the work of disgruntled aristocrats, treasonous Catholics and sinister counter-revolutionaries. In order to combat the threats that lurked both within and without, the Legislative Assembly decided to pass a series of radical decrees. Decrees that conflicted with the Declaration of the Rights of Man and decrees which put the Assembly on a collision course with the King. Led by Brousseau and his allies, on the 9th of November, the Assembly initially targeted the émigré threat. Going much further than what the National Assembly had considered at the start of the year, the Legislative Assembly decreed that all French citizens gathered outside the nation's borders were henceforth suspected of conspiracy against the nation. The émigrés were to be given less than eight weeks to return to France. Failure to return by the 1st of January, 1792, would see them declared guilty of conspiracy and sentenced to death. Making these measures even more contentious, the income and property of the émigrés, condemned in abstentia, would be made available to the nation. The rights of wives, children and even creditors to claim this property were invalidated. In an additional decree, the Assembly required the King's brother, the Comte de Provence, to return to France. If he failed to do so, he would forfeit his right to the Regency. More controversially, on the 29th of November, the Assembly passed a decree seeking to rein in the renegade priests. Every non-juring priest would be given a week to swear loyalty to the Constitution. Those who failed to do so would be branded as suspected rebels against the state. Their pensions would be cut and imprisonment loomed for any priest who either refused to leave their post or who instigated disorder within their community. Local governments could also remove priests from their homes and forcibly relocate them if they felt that this would protect the public peace. These measures were obviously far more severe than the policies the National Assembly had adopted. Condemning all émigrés to death and imprisoning priests who put the Pope before Paris was a dramatic escalation in the Assembly's efforts to combat the perceived enemies of the nation. Unsurprisingly, such policies were criticised by both contemporaries and historians alike. At the time, those who opposed the emigration measure ironically embraced the very document the emigres sought to destroy, the Constitution. Through codifying personal liberty, the Constitution confirmed the right of emigration. 
the emigres could hardly be sentenced to death for exercising a right the constitution granted them, or so it was argued. Furthermore, the decree's contemporary opponents asserted that the measure was contrary to the general amnesty issued by the National Assembly in September. Historians have since attacked the Assembly's actions as contrary to both the Constitution and the revolutionary principles of liberty and equality. Historian Ippolite Tain, for example, condemns the Assembly's adoption of an inequitable decree which created two judicial systems for one people. Quoting a contemporary, Tain notes, Two systems of natural right, two orders of justice, two standards of morality were accordingly established. By one of these, it was allowable to do against one's fellow creature, a reputed aristocrat, that which would be criminal if he were a patriot. Other historians focus their criticism on what they describe as an encroachment on religious freedoms. The measures taken against refractory priests were seen as particularly egregious by both religious revolutionaries and more conservative historians, with the latter often describing the policy with words like assault and attack. The refractory clergy of the capital petitioned the king to veto the legislation on the grounds that the constitution guaranteed freedom of conscience and religion. However, while these measures may seem harsh or even egregious to some, there is no shortage of historians who defend these policies. Focusing on the measure against the emigres, historian Adolf Thiers states, It is certain that the liberty of man does not permit of his being chained to his native soil. But when it is made plainly evident that citizens who abandon their country do so for the purpose of assembling in a foreign land to assume a hostile attitude, it is clearly justifiable to take precautions against such dangerous projects. Shifting our focus away from the morality of the measures the Assembly adopted, the motivation behind these decrees is an interesting historical debate in its own right. Some historians seek to rationalise the decisions of the Legislative Assembly by highlighting the very human realities that impacted the situation. Historian Timothy Tackett, in his recent work The Coming of the Terror of the French Revolution, does a brilliant job in unpacking the human factors that influenced the course of events. Tackett emphasises the common belief amongst deputies, both Jacobin and Fillon, that a grand conspiracy was afoot and acting against the revolution. According to Tackett, many legislatures genuinely feared that a secret plot was planning to cripple the new regime and that this is demonstrated by references to grand conspiracies appearing ever more frequently in both the speeches and private communications and correspondence of the deputies. Furthermore, the Brissoans in particular believed that the woes of the nation were attributable to this plot. As the contemporary Pierre Dumont noted in March 1792, the Brissoans 
talked only of the conspiracies of the emigrants and the Austrian committee and the treachery of the court. Historian Timothy Tackett thus argues that in order to understand what motivated the deputies to take such radical measures, in order to comprehend why the legislature was willing to seemingly ignore the liberties enshrined in the Constitution, we must appreciate the intense level of suspicion, fear and anxiety which permeated throughout the Assembly in late 1791 and early 1792. Historian Adolf Thiers, writing some 150 years before Tackett, shares a similar opinion. While defending the measures the deputies adopted as reasonable, Thiers notes that the Assembly thought of itself not as legislating against a theoretical attack, but as defending itself against an assault which had already begun. This measure, as also that against the emigrants, sprung from the desire of self-preservation, a desire which takes strong hold of threatened governments and causes them to fortify themselves with excessive precautions. It is not so much the perpetrated act which they punish, it is the presumed attack which they prosecute, and the measures of the assembly became arbitrary and cruel in exact proportion to the suspicion they harboured. Historians such as Tackett and Thiers emphasise the mindset of the deputies, especially the environment of alarm and suspicion, in explaining why the Assembly was willing to take such dramatic action against the nation's traitors. I personally think this explanation makes a lot of sense. Since everything from riots to inflation, food shortages to religious tensions, was believed to be the work of hidden conspirators, it was only natural that the deputies targeted, forcefully, the visible allies of their invisible enemies. It is noteworthy, however, that not all historians are willing to attribute the actions of Brousseau and his allies as motivated purely by fear and anxiety. While not discounting that the Brousseauans legitimately believed that counter-revolutionary cabals were working to overthrow the revolution, historians Simon Sharma and Jonathan Israel both claim that Brousseau pursued these policies for political reasons, hoping to present the king as in league with the nation's enemies. Sharma states that Brousseau promoted aggressive legislation designed to force the monarchy to make itself unpopular through the veto. If the king vetoed the controversial legislation, no dispute mechanism existed to resolve any resulting crisis. With the assembly unable to overrule the king's veto, and the king unable to dissolve the assembly, any use of the veto potentially meant years of political deadlock. This protracted impasse would allow Brousseau, a committed Republican, to savage the monarchy for its scandalous stance, which protected the old regime's supporters and opposed the will of the people. Thus, while an environment of conspiracy and suspicion may have driven the deputies to adopt such harsh measures, it is argued that realpolitik 
could have also been a key motivating factor, particularly amongst the Assembly's leading voices on the left. With the Assembly adopting hard-line positions against the Kingdom's emigres and non-constitutional priests, the King had to decide how to respond to Brousseau's potential trap. While Louis was willing to accept the decree which denied his brother his right to the regency, that was about all the King was willing to accept. Louis had no desire to endorse the more controversial bill against the emigres, a decree which he viewed to be immoral and unjust. Having sought to escape the revolution himself, the King refused to endorse a policy which would criminalise another's attempt to seek safety. The King was supported in this decision by both Barnev and the Directory of the Department. Barnev, for his part, insisted on the King's veto, believing that the French monarchy would look dangerously weak if it permitted such an encroachment on individual liberties. Louis's commitment to blocking the decree against the Catholic clergy was even more resolute. Long regretting his decision to accept the civil constitution of the clergy, Louis, a sincere Catholic, had no intention of making the same mistake twice. Referring to the decree that would essentially make preaching Orthodox Catholicism illegal, the king reportedly said to himself, As to this decree, I would rather lose my life than sanction it. Unfortunately for Louis, future revolutionaries would be happy to oblige. Determined to protect the Catholic faithful and intent on protecting French citizens abroad, the king made it clear he had no intention of signing these controversial decrees. The result was crisis. Historian Charles Hazen records the outcome of this decision. The Assembly forthwith passed a decree against the refractory priests, which only made a bad matter worse. They were required to take the oath to the civil constitution within a week. If they refused, they would be considered suspicious characters, their pensions would be suspended, and they would be subject to the watchful and hostile surveillance of the government. Louis XVI vetoed this decree, legitimately using the power given him by the constitution. This veto, accompanied by others, offended public opinion and weakened the king's hold upon France. It would have been better for Louis had he never been given the veto power, since every exercise of it placed him in opposition to the assembly and inflamed party passions. Less than three months into the assembly's existence, the new legislature found itself in a deadlock with the king. If Brousseau's true objective was to isolate and demonise the monarchy in order to advance his republican agenda, then his plan seemed to be working. Not only did deadlock grip the government, but Louis's actions allowed the leaders of the left to successfully frame the king's actions as opposing, rather than upholding, the will of the people. As a result, the king's veto, to paraphrase historian John Dolberg Acton, began the Assembly's estrangement from the King. Two opposing camps were formed, the Assembly and the Court, 
And as the deadlock lengthened between the two sides, so too did the distance that separated them. In an atmosphere which can be characterised with words such as conspiracy and suspicion, compromise was not an idea that many were willing to entertain. Critically for the court, the use of the veto not only helped to estrange the king from the assembly, but also the king from his people, particularly the citizens of Paris. Having been relatively quiet after the bloody Champ de Mars massacre, once more the radical elements of the city began to stir. Violent unrest hit the capital in the wake of the king's veto over refractory priests, while mobs started to gather outside of the assembly and chant, no veto, no sanction, as the legislature sat in session. As the city became more restless, no constitutional mechanism existed to resolve the deadlock gripping the government, and the growing crisis had no obvious means of resolution besides the king's capitulation. Historian Jonathan Israel notes, The long-standing royal vetoes eventually created complete deadlock, paralysing the assembly and leading to months of chronic political crisis through early 1792. So grave were the obstacles, by early 1792, the constitutional monarchy had for most intent and purposes ceased functioning. Within the space of a few months, the new constitutional regime, the new revolutionary order, was already coming undone. Far from ushering in a new era of peace and prosperity, the constitution had instead enabled a period of paralysis and crisis. With the government at a standstill, Brousseau and his allies began to feverishly lobby for their preferred solution to the problems which face the nation. As Brousseau succinctly put it, France required war to purge her from the vices of despotism. As we shall see, war purged France of many things, but despotism would not be one of them. Thank you for listening to episode 24, The Legislative Assembly. There are three episode extras which accompany this episode. The first episode extra explores historian Charles Mallet's description of the Brissoans, including both their skills as well as their ideology. The second is the writings of a critical journalist who attacked the Assembly's controversial measures against the emigres. Finally, the third episode extra comes from a liberally-minded noble as he details all the sinister intrigues of the renegade priests scattered across the country. In the next episode, we'll be focusing on the various external problems which confronted the assembly, particularly the actions of Prussia and Austria, and how the great powers were linked to the émigré threat. We'll also be covering the actions of the court, because Louis and Marie Antoinette begin to dabble in treasonous plots. Of course, before you go, a reminder that if you've enjoyed this episode of Grey History, and you would like to listen to some more Grey History, please do tell people about the show. Also, if you think the show is worth a dollar or more, you can always become a Patreon as well. As always, thank you for your time, stay safe, and have a great day.